This week we touch on how to hack the cycle of failure, excuses and rationalization if you're looking into a weight loss mindset. With me, stress Teflon author Luke Mathers, dietitian Harriet Walker. This is a good one. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, bringing you everything you need, want and should know about health, fitness, nutrition and training. As always, the information contained in this podcast is for the information purposes only and is not designed to diagnose or be prescriptive to treat, prevent or manage any injury, disease or other health-related condition. Today's podcast is brought to you by Green Tea TX100, a delicious low-calorie blend of green tea extract, gut-friendly probiotics and powerful antioxidants. Packed full of energy, Green Tea TX100 helps boost your metabolism, promote good bacteria, enhance energy levels, and stimulate fat burning through its natural thermogenic effect. Naturally sweetened and with no added sugar, Green Tea TX100 is your answer to a great tasting, satisfying energy boost. Available in delicious super berry flavor. Welcome to the Body Science Podcast, the center of fit, happy, and healthy. And speaking of fit, happy, and healthy, I've got two gurus here to talk today in relation to that exact topic. We're going to discuss how to hack into the weight loss mindset. With me, Harriet Walker, dietitian, sports dietitian, lifter. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Nice work, Harriet. On my left, Luke Mathers wrote a book called Stress Teflon. If you haven't read it, grab it. Where can you get it from, Luke? Uh, Yeah, you can get it from stressteflon.com. Okay, so that's what we're going to get. And you also do a lot of motivational talking in relation to stress and stress management. And your your big thing is stress is not bad. No, it's not. It's really good as long as you learn how to use it. Hopefully that's some of the stuff we can talk about today. And Harriet, how, how much is stress related to weight loss? Like, let's let's not muck around here. It's just, we're talking about weight loss mindset here. Well, I think uh, stress is a very big factor in a, a lot of people. very big? Yes. I okay. see this probably a few times a week. There's somebody who is battling with overeating due to their, their lifestyle. They're overworked. They've got kids. They're trying to balance everything. And they're eating their emotions. And eating so, their emotions. I like that. Yeah, it happens quite commonly. So this is definitely... Definitely a topic that I wrangle each week and it's not going anywhere because we're probably not as adept at dealing with our stress levels as we might need to be. And when someone comes and sees you in a clinic to talk about, hey, I want to lose weight or gain weight or whatever it is they talk to you about, how much of it does have to do with stress and emotional, the emotional side of dieting? Look, there's an individual variation there, but very commonly, like there is an element of stress that I'm assessing as we go through their initial assessment. So, you know, I'm talking... I'm not just talking about their nutrition intake for yeah. the probably the first half hour. I'm talking about their lifestyle and the wise. yeah, what are some of the things that impact the way they eat? And so I'm looking at their work and their ability to prepare food. Where do they get their food from? And what are they eating? And so very commonly I'll get these people saying, "Oh, I eat this perfect diet," and I'm like, "Cool, but if you ate just like that, we wouldn't be here right now." So what else is going <laughs> on? <laughs> and that's when they're like, "Oh, well, you know, I have a bad day and I eat this, or my boss is." you know gotten mad at me and so I go to the you know whatever and I get that little sugar hug that I get from food and that really is a lot of the time sometimes I'm not I'm referring out before they get into my meal plans I'm mm. making sure that they're they're okay ready to go emotionally so if I'm getting sugar hugged Luke little dopamine 
lollipops. Yeah, dopamine lollipops. What should I be doing? Like you've written the book Stress Teflon. What should I be doing? One of the main things in Stress Teflon is, is about self-awareness. You've got to sort of understand what you're thinking and why you're thinking it and whether it's helping. And one of the hassles that you get when you have a bad day, you know, your kids are being a little bastard or your husband's not being so nice or your boss. There are loads of stresses that come and you have no control over them. The stress makes you feel uncomfortable and it's kind of designed to make you feel uncomfortable. It's supposed to spur you in, into action. You're a caveman. You're supposed to you're supposed to run away from tigers. The hassle is there are not tigers any place anymore and you just want something that makes you feel comfortable. A little dopamine lollipop like grabbing a chocolate bar or a bit of cake might make you feel good for a little while but the long-term benefit of that don't last very long. So when you have that problem and you're feeling terrible and you've got to do something, the something you do, you reach for a cake or you reach for something sweet and you're going to undo all your, di- all your diet good work that you've done during the day and you put yourself on a little sugar up and down roller coaster for the rest of the day and that makes it really hard to get off. So what should we do? I think if you can sort of stop at that point where you feel that, yeah, I'm starting to get cranky, I'm starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable and just take a couple of deep breaths and take a couple of moments and do whatever you're doing deliberately from then. The hassle is we go into whatever's right next to us and we look for some instant gratification. The shame and guilt felt after eating the food that people will know that they probably shouldn't when they did it reactively and they don't have that, I'd probably refer to as mindfulness, that what you're talking about, that the deep breath and the stopping point is a, it's a really powerful one. But until people are aware of that cycle that, you know, we've got in this picture here, they don't know to stop. And I think that's a really important pivotal moment there. So if we could do a pre-mortem and step back a little bit on that, what's happening in our bodies at that time where that stress has hit us and Luke's saying, stop, take a breath and, and think about where you're going next. What's happening in our body there that's driving us towards sugar? Yeah. So there's a few different things that are going on when we're stressed. And I mean, the idea is it's a fight or flight reaction. So what happens when we need to fight or we need to run is that we need glucose to fuel that movement. So we're Mm -hmm. either fighting something or we're running away from it. Either way, we're going to need extra energy. So we get glucose mobilizations, excess blood glucose levels. We get increased awareness. So we're sort of our heightened senses. We might get a bit of tension throughout our muscles. A lot of physiological factors. We might get increased in breath rate, increased blood pressure, just so we're ready to go. But the problem is a lot of the time we're having these reactions sitting down and we're kind of almost stewing in our own blood sugar (laughs) because we're not stewing in our own blood sugar we might be having that response to a bill that we've just opened or we might be having that response because our partner's over there upset at us for something or there's lots of different reasons why we might have that stress response might be work but we're not utilizing that blood sugar level so there's a couple of different things we might be you know storing that excess blood glucose level as fat and very commonly we see that as visceral fat so we've got subcutaneous fat which is a fat that is just below the skin and it doesn't really have any negative necessarily health implications but it's a visceral fat that is around the center and it is really encasing their organs and is actually impairing their ability to do their job but also what we see with stress is we we also get loss of appetite initially because it doesn't bode well that if I'm stressed and I'm about to run away from something that I need to have a quick snack so our body turns off our, our hunger cues but we might actually get an amplified response later on and we're trying to replace those those stores that we might not have had at that time and generally speaking sugar is the the go-to when we've got decreased blood sugar 
sugar levels, we might get a corresponding sort of craving for something that's really going to bump them up again. So there's a few different things and it's a sort of a time phase at which it happens. Yeah, so we get, you know, stress is really associated with that belly fat around the middle, which is, again, implicated with things like metabolic disease, diabetes, prediabetes and whatnot, cardiovascular disease. So we're really trying to avoid or trying to reduce the accretion of fat around the belly. The main thing with that, you summed it up perfectly. The fastest place the body can get glucose is from your liver. The liver has got this lovely little glycogen store sitting there ready to go. So once that cortisol and adrenaline hit the system, the glucose goes straight into the bloodstream. You have heaps of it there and then you get an insulin response, which is why when it crashes a little bit later and then you throw food on top of a system that's already really high in glucose so that when it gets back to the liver, the liver says, okay, I'm going to have to store this stuff now and it ends up storing it as visceral fat around your belly. And then there's also the association of a stressful situation with eating sugary foods and that becomes a learnt behaviour as well. So that's very much like the old Pavlov's dog ring a bell and get a, a response. We see that with people that every time until they break the cycle, they're associating stressful occasions with that food hug that gives them that sort of small dose of yeah, um, dopamine, dopamine, lollipop. dopamine lollipop. Yeah, so we've all got our different names for it. So obviously it's a thing. <laughs> so that I'm sitting there, I've just been reamed by my boss or had a flight with my partner, Luke, and you say, stop, think, take a few breaths. What's going on there? Like seriously, how many people are doing that? You're going to work out the first thing you do whenever there's any danger is you're going to get away from the thing that causes you stress. Talking about that crossroad, like the point where left or right. Yeah, you get to a fork in the stress road. One of the things I talk about in the book is that there's always a fork in the stress road. There's always a moment when you can either take stress as a challenge and when you take that road, you don't actually get any of the vascular problems that happen that, that are associated with stress. And when you take it as more of a challenge, it's a bit like climbing a mountain. Your body's response to that is actually really good. Bring it on, let's go on. It's a healthy thing. Whereas when you take the other fork in the stress road, which is the threat road, you go into this little spiral of, oh no, this is terrible. Oh no, look how awful I feel. And you end up in this little vortex of stress, which is really terrible. And it okay. closes your mind off to solutions as well, I suppose, when you're in that situation where you know, yeah. you're in that cycle of it's all negative. Yeah, you become defensive and dumb. So how do you catch yourself? Stop. You've just got to stop and connect. What I talk about in, in the book is if you've got this old brain and this new brain and our brains have gone on in layers, you've got all this old stuff going on and it teaches you how to be reactive and it's designed to get you out of trouble. When you say old brain, what are you talking about? When you talk about old brain, I'm talking about the limbic brain. It's the stuff right in the middle at the top of your spinal cord. It's where you have things like your fear centers and your memories and all your emotions come from. It's where your amygdala is. It's all the, all the things that were designed to keep you alive when you're in the jungle. Your new brain is like your prefrontal cortex. It's the smart bit that's right on top of your forehead and can actually do your sort of logical thinking for you. The, the new brain's supposed to be the sort of the sort of supervisor of the whole lot. And we make a smart decision, we've got to engage the new brain. If you engage it. If you engage it. And is that the stop and think part? The thing about the emotional part of your brain is it doesn't have any language. It can't talk. So when you meet someone and you think, oh, I just had a bad feeling about that person. Well, normally that's your old brain saying that what this person's saying and what they're giving off aren't the same thing. That's why we get those feelings and we can't kind of say why. The old brain doesn't have any, any ability to use language. So when your old brain's the one going off and your new brain is meant to kick in and work out why and how to solve the problem, rather than getting your amygdala hijacked, the fear center of your brain goes off and all of a sudden you get these cascades of adrenaline and cortisol and all of that, which generally don't help unless you're running away from something. And let's face it, we're not running away from much usually. So you mentioned people tend to demonize their, their hunger with this theory of where it's all going mm. in that they feel bad about what they just ate and yeah, then the loop yeah. goes on and yep. on and on and on. Well, it's another layer of, you know, negative 
emotion when we're feeling shame and guilt about what we've eaten. You know, it's a negative association with eating food and then that poor self-efficacy of I don't know how to feed myself properly and I'm I'm not feeling great about that either and I can't do anything. So, it, you know, it might start with just being a stressful life or job and it turns into making eating a really big thing as well, which is not necessarily positive. I think no one really likes to fail at something. We don't like to think, oh, we've let ourselves down. I know myself, I struggled with my weight for years and years. And for 20 years, I tried to get under 100 kilos and hadn't been able to do it. If you tried something for 20 years and failed, you're pretty shit at it. You're not very good at it. So your belief that you can actually do this is really, really poor. So the hassle is then when it comes to a stressful time and you don't have the impulse control you'd like to have to be the best version of yourself, you're going to give in. And then you're going to say, look, I told you I was shit. I told you I wasn't very good at this and that's what's going on. Yeah, and then the thing that goes on in your head that says, well, I've stuffed this now. I'm going to, it doesn't matter. I'll eat whatever I want from now on. Ah, effort, the old effort. Speaking Um, of effort, so I've just had a bad day. I've gone and loaded up on donuts and cakes. mm -hmm. I'm feeling bad about myself, which you tell me happens. What should I do when that happens? This is is something I talk to a lot, all my clients about, all of it, because I say, you know, and we said it's another other podcast, health is a skill. And the first thing I ask them to do, instead of derailing themselves and saying, you know, screw it, I'm going to eat whatever I want, I ask them to be curious, but not judgmental. Be curious about what happened. You know, you've buggered up. What can you take away? What data or what information can you garner from that situation? Because once we can stop and be objective about it, it's not because you're a failure. And like you were saying, like no one likes to fail at anything. And eating is an inherent part of our, you know, being. We have to eat. So the fact that you can fail at eating is, you know, that feels pretty crappy. But, you know, when you look at food environment, there's a lot of different reasons why that is not the case these days. Despite that, I ask people to be curious but not judgmental because that means when they come back and say, hey, Harriet, I messed up on this, instead of blocking themselves to seeing what the objective data is, why it happened, by being curious about it, they open themselves up to being actually able to learn from it. So it's like you're learning any skill, any new job. If you are hard on yourself and like, oh, I screwed up, blah, blah, blah. If you've got a boss who, you know, totally rides you for it rather than being like, okay, you did this wrong. This is why I did it wrong. And like, let's help you learn to self-correct. You know, people, uh, once they're open to the fact that they might have done something wrong, but they're also open to the fact that they can fix it themselves. You then get to know what you do next time. Okay, I've triggered this. Next time I get that trigger, I'm going to do something in a different way. And what type of things do you suggest? I know you're going to say stop and breathe. I read a book called When by a guy called Daniel Pink. He's a really, really cool guy from the States. And he came up with this idea of a pre-mortem. Everyone talks about a post-mortem. At the end of the day, you look back and you, you see what went bad. And in a post-mortem, you look at things that went wrong. In a pre-mortem, you, you look at things in the future and think what may happen. So what are you doing now? Strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are the opportunities which are external? And what are yeah. the threats which are external? And I actually, I've talked about this in some of the body Anyone science. Anyone ever sat through a really boring work conversation? They've done a SWAT, but what about yourself? And it actually brings out some really insightful things. It makes people identify because this is a large part of reasons why generic diets don't work is because they're not tailored to that individual person's issues. I have a theory on this one. One of the cases of carrots and sticks in our body is dopamine. Dopamine is your drive to thrive. It's the thing that keeps you focused mm-hmm. whenever you're good to go. I don't reckon you get a big dopamine hit from ticking other people's boxes. <laughs> if you're going to get a dopamine hit, you want to get a dopamine hit from ticking your own boxes. You want to be the one that decides the things that you want to do. And I think the hassle with some diets that you just downloaded the internet is that you're ticking other people's yep. boxes. And it doesn't mean anything to you. Like it's it doesn't have any meaning to you specifically and it's easy to jump off if it's generic. Yeah, whereas you do feel with your clients, uh, you give them that and they're accountable to you a bit and I think that would help a bit. I 
like to tell sort of my clients that by, by the end of us working together, I'd like you to figure it out. For you. Like I don't want you to need me. But it, it'd be nice for them to actually come to me with those questions like, okay, this is what happened. This is what I did badly. Okay, let's work through that one this time. What did you do? What were the scenarios? And I'm going to help you figure out what do we do better next time. So that way the next time they approach that situation, like, oh, I've seen this before. I remember what happened last time. I did this and this is what I'm going to do this time. Yeah. So I get people to go, okay, what happened? Like you forgot to bring your lunch to work. And they're like, oh, yeah. So I ended up buying like a, a crappy, you know, takeaway of some description. I didn't, you know, follow my diet plan. I'm like, okay, cool. That's going to happen again. I'll guarantee you. What's the nearest things that you have close by to your office? How do I construct a healthy meal from a 7-Eleven or whatever? And it's doable. It's all doable. Like mm. I get people to figure out what a petrol station's meals that they could come up with because, I mean, everyone's got access to a petrol station and there's plenty of healthy foods That's available. That's an awesome pre-mortem thing to do, isn't it? What am I going to do when I'm stuck and I've only got 7-Eleven for dinner? Absolutely. So it's... Inside a pie without the pastry. Yeah, there we go. But, you know, there's heaps of stuff. If you're, if you're ready for it, again, it's not about not having those road bumps. It's about how quickly you can kind of, you know, bump over them, you know, and keep going. The other thing that we do as humans that makes sense is we have a negative bias. We tend to focus on things we do that are negative and we really remember those. We don't necessarily remember what we did on the days when we did stuff well. So to kind of catch yourself, I've had a really good day today. I've stuck to everything said I'm going to do. My pre-mortem worked out perfectly. I went to the thing I knew I had to go to. If you're a manager in the business, one of the first rules of management is you catch your staff doing something well. And we don't do that with ourselves. We really berate ourselves when we do something wrong and we don't actually catch ourselves doing them well and saying, you know, I've tra trained really hard this morning. I ran hard up that hill or I, I could have eaten that cake at lunchtime and I didn't. We don't actually give ourselves a rap at times when we do well. I think that's something that we need to change. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's not great to be, you know, high-fiving yourself in public. A quick question. The tribe, you're doing a meal plan for someone or diet plan, whatever you want. You're doing a diet. How important is a tribe? Like Luke's book talks about the tribe. So how important is that tribe around? And you can talk about what a tribe is in a second, Luke. How important is it to talk about the environment outside of the individual? Really, really important. Like I think it's almost a make or break. Like who's on your bus, I sort of say. And there's people who will make or break. You know, it's the person who, if you decide to give up alcohol, who's the guy who's going to be like, oh, come on, mate, just have one. You're boring. You used to be cool and now you're not. Or, you know, your cake eating buddy. Oh, what? We're not eating cake anymore. Well, what do we have in common now? As opposed to the friend who's like, oh, okay, that's really interesting. Let's, I know, I'll come for a walk with you instead. Good on you for trying to make a change. Like, it's not until you try and make a health change that you'll find out who your friends are. I found this really, really quite apparent when I was bodybuilding. So I was cutting for a competition and I probably shed 50% of my friendship group. <laughs> Some of them were really supportive. I made a big point of going out, you know, I wasn't drinking, but I was still going out having a good time. Like, I don't think I'm a boring person unless, you know, I'm talking about politics, which I don't know anything about, you know, or they'd be like, oh, come on, just do this one thing. They weren't supporting me. They were looking for ways to bring me down. And a lot of the time they took it as an insult. Like I was somehow indirectly insulting them. Are you saying I'm a big drinker? No, I'm just not drinking. They're like, oh, well, are you saying I'm fat? No, no, not. That's, that's your... There's a bit of human nature about that, that people don't want to feel as if someone's going to leave them behind. I don't want you to get too far ahead of yourself. So that way you might not like me anymore. And it's a terrible part of human emotions, but it's something that people actually do do. Yeah. And they want you, it's like social loafing. Like when you're in a workplace, you'll either, if it's a positive health environment, the majority of the population in the workplace are following a healthy way of life, then you'll follow suit. Whereas if it's a less optimal, you tend to sort of fall to the less optimal ways, if, unless you've got a very strong resolution. Otherwise, you tend to sort of, if you're 
50-50 on something, you'll tend to fall to the majority. Having a really strong why and having a really strong support network, your tribe, uh, that makes a really big difference to success success outcomes. Um, and that's not just nutrition-wise. That's probably across the board. So why is the tribe important to us, Luke? We've talked a lot about carrots and sticks. We have this thing, these things, these carrots that are designed to make us go in certain directions. Cortisol and stress hormones are your sticks. They kind of guide you in the right direction, but they also give you a hit on the ass when you need it to go faster. There are things like oxytocin and serotonin. Serotonin is your pride from inside hormone. It's things that make you think you feel good about yourself and you feel proud of doing stuff. But you can't get that by yourself. You need someone else to get serotonin. You need a tribe to actually have serotonin. It's the things that brought tribes together. Let's face it, we've only got really small claws, not very sharp teeth, and we don't run very fast. If we're in the jungle, we're toast. I mean, everything is going to mow us down and eat us for lunch. But the reason we're able to survive for the last few million years is that we have a tribe and all those hormones yeah, that that's, pull us um, together. Yeah, it's a really interesting one. I think we're always searching for a tribe these days. Like, I think it's interesting that we don't tend to have that same sort of family unit that we used to. We don't tend to have the sort of, you know, potentially religious sort of ties that we might used to have, which is why things like finding your tribe on social media or finding your tribe via, the, you know, a local gym or something like that is definitely something we crave. But, it, you know, it just shows you the importance of having that backing from a group of people is so important, you know, together we can go fast, but we can go further when we're with a group. Yeah, that's the thing about tribes. When you've got that tribe and, you know, you're training and exercising together, you're doing things that are really positive. I get a massive amount of buzz from training with other people that I don't I don't go anywhere near as hard when I'm by myself. It just makes the whole exercise things a lot more fun. I fully get FOMO. I'm just not happy at all. Somehow my friends might be somewhere doing something that, yeah, it might even just be a sweaty session that we did before, but they're doing it without me and I hate that. Great research around group exercise and that shared experience and the sort of endorphin, you know, impacts of that. There's actually a scientific, you know, explanation as to why group exercise over individual exercise is a lot more compelling and a lot more positive, I think. So there's definitely something to that as well. Oh, so. When you watch one of the 9-8 Riley sessions and hang around afterwards, the camaraderie is massive. It's, oh, a, it's at a whole new level. You all have just yeah. been beaten beaten down exactly the same way and you're all doing it together. But there's something about, you know, doing that group, the group Massively session at positive. Riley Street. You push that extra 1% for your teammates, definitely. And the more you do those, it's like those army people that come back from war. These people have shared some really hard experience with and they become even tighter. So doing those things that are difficult and doing the really hard gym sessions with people around you actually makes those bonds tighter and it's one of those things I talk about in the book about how to make stress non-stick you have to have the safety of a tribe you've got to feel as if you're contributing to that tribe and you've got to have honest self-awareness I think if you have all those three things sticking to your fitness goal and things like that become a lot easier they do for me anyway what are some of the steps to making that tribe I think probably the biggest thing about the tribe is sort of giving rather than getting and I think a lot of people look at those sorts of things and you look at things like I did a talk a while ago for a company called Business Networking International and their their catch cry is give as gain and the whole idea of this tribe is that you've got to give to other people and it, it was a great way to be. I think when you're building a tribe people look at what they can get out of it rather than what they can put in. Yeah those like deliberately developing those oh, corporations that deliberately developmental they're looking for ways to grow they're looking for ways to support each other as opposed to looking at ways of progressing their own individual careers and it makes mm. such a big difference. So getting back into the weight loss mindset and how to 
hack stress. This is probably one for you more than Luke, Harriet, is what are some of the things you feel like when you feel hungry? Like what's what's making us feel hungry? Oh, there's a few different things there. So there's a few there's a physiological sort of hormone. Uh, ghrelin is the hunger hormone and that's what's sort of impacting our drive to eat. And there's also, uh, you know, people's want to eat as well can make them feel hungry. Like I know when people are bored, they, they sort of say, oh, look, I'm not hungry. I know I'm not. I'm not getting that grumbly feeling, that empty feeling in my stomach. And some people actually forget what it feels like to be hungry, the actual hunger. Because they're eating so frequently, they forget the physiological response of that sort of empty feeling. They've got that, you know, the slight spike in the ghrelin hormone, which is driving them to, to start looking for food. We know when we're a little bit more stressed, we might be going for food, even though we're not physiologically in need of a meal. And so actually being aware of your body's cues and tuning in on those a little bit more is actually a really effective, you know, it's mindful eating. It's tuning in to those cues that tell us when it's, you know, we're good to eat and when we're ready to stop. I think we don't tend to listen to those as well as we used to. I think as kids, we were all told to eat until we've eaten everything on our plate. And there's a generation of people who don't know what it feels like to be pleasantly full, but not, you know, stuffed to the, the eyeballs these days. So there's a few physiological things that are going on in terms of hunger and that's definitely that hormonal drive there. But then... There's a few things that feel like that too. Like those feelings you get when you get knots in your stomach and you're feeling anxious and something. That feels a lot like hunger. It feels exactly like hunger there. The part is that the cortisol is turning off your digestive system. So the blood is running out of your digestive system because it doesn't need to digest while you're running away from tigers. So that feeling of having knots in your stomach and stuff is, is a hell of a lot like hunger. And it's also that discomfort that goes back to the thing we were talking about before. You want something that makes you feel good and eating generally makes you feel good. It's a funny little sort of feedback loop, but I definitely think the feeling of hunger is definitely something that we've kind of forgotten. A lot of people have forgotten and I'm getting people to sort of tune into their cues, their hunger cues, and they're like, oh, I actually have forgotten what it feels like to be hungry. Just that general feeling of... Grumbles. Emptiness, yeah, yep. grumbles. And unfortunately then you do eat and it puts sugar into a system that's already full of sugar and then you feel crap about yourself and you get even more stressed and then you start storing fat around your belly and around your liver but thirst will do it as well um i think you guys did a podcast on fasting a little while ago that you lose a lot of salt with that there's different sort of triggers for people overeating undereating, and sometimes it's the off the back of undereating too much that they get to five o'clock and they they're just ravenous and they're you know they go to the cupboard and they're yeah. just and that, that's a good point you guys just mentioned. Then I'm, I'm in the cupboard and I'm halfway through six muffins, donuts, whatever. When should I, and you said to stop, think and breathe. So say I do stop, think and breathe and I'm many, many calories into my stop, think, what'd you call it before? Something lollipop. What do I do right then? And this is this is a real life. Like people, people who are struggling with weight loss, like this is what they're doing. They're hitting the cupboard. They're in there. They're feeling bad. So they get in the loop and they should get off the chalky bickies and grab those ones over there. How bad is it? And what should I do? I reckon the key to that sort of thing, if you're going to have a fight between the world and your willpower, the world is going to win. I guarantee you. Willpower is a good thing. It's kind of like a muscle. You know, the more you use it, the stronger it gets, but it definitely runs out of steam at some stage. What is willpower? Willpower is doing the harder thing when the harder thing is the right thing to do. So intrinsic motivation, that thing that, you know, your, your why as to why you're doing things and it's doing the things that when no one else is watching, you'll still do. Like it's doing the harder thing when the harder thing is the right thing to do. I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, it sounds like Wikipedia. No, I think that sounds fantastic. <laughs> 
Yeah, I have an issue when I'm at work. There's always junk food out the back. And whenever I'm having a busy day or I'm getting a bit stressed, I go out there and eat. And I've actually stopped going out to the room where the food is and tried doing some meditative breathing for a couple of minutes. It sounds really hippie-ish, but I you know, just lie down and breathe and it calms me down and gets rid of some of that stress hormones in the system. And I don't go out and eat chocolate cake. So I find it really helps. So you're going to put some lie down belly breathing into your programs? I always put mindfulness in. Mm-hmm. Like when people have got those issues with, well, they're struggling with being able to stop and actually recognise hunger versus stress. Definitely encouraging people to take up things like mindful, you know, mindful eating. How do we get through, like, obviously when we're stressed, we're not craving a tin of tuna. No one was, has ever come home from a big day at work and said, I want some fat-free hummus with some celery. It's never happened. What are we doing in that play? Do we have a little area that we go, okay, we're going to be naughty, so we're going to the naughty corner? Or do we, I think, how do we, you know, how do we handle this stress? I don't think you need to go from, you know, donuts to celery. I think it's a couple of steps along the way that you, you can sort of transition with which is important and that's also coming down to identifying when your hot spots are is doing the pre-mortem and going okay I normally hang for chocolate at 3pm and that's really common. What am I going to have instead? I'm going to have a chocolate flavoured protein shake and or like a homemade protein ball or something like that. That's something a little bit sweet, a little bit nice but it's not you know as boring as you know chopped veggies which I do put on people's meal plans and yeah. very rarely get eaten. <laughs> So, I'm stressed. Give me some chopped veggies. Yeah. There's a really cool thing when you're on a strict eating plan. It's called the panic button effect. They did this study in the States where they got people to do this really difficult cognitive task. And they, they set them in front of the computer and they, they had to do it. And they had this really loud, annoying noise. It was like a wah sort of sound in the background. And they could rate how, how well they did this task. And they got one group to say, look, we've got this noise here. Sorry, there's nothing we can do about it. Just do the test and we'll see how you go. And the other group, they gave a little button and said, look, the noise is there. We know it's annoying, but if you could just do the task anyway, if you really have to, you can press the button and stop it. And what they found is that all the people that did the test where they had the option of stopping the noise, none of them stopped it, but they all did much better on the task. Yeah, you can actually hack your brain a little bit. You can sort of take some of the stress out of it by saying, look, I can do this if I want to, but I'm not going to. Again, it's doing the hard thing when the harder thing's the right thing to do. Yeah, I do it with protein bars. I have them at work all the time and I say to myself, I'm not going to break the fast. Yeah, I'm not going to do it yet but I know if I really really have to I've got the protein bars there as a fallback they're my sort of panic button if you like yeah I actually have this thing at work it's like a time release safe and I put my protein it's like a time release Tupperware and I put my protein bars in that yeah I actually invented the idea and then um, discovered that someone else is will do it it's like a little safe that has a timer lock on the top put your food in you, you turn a little dial and press the button it actually I actually store my protein bars in there so I know I can have a protein bar but I'm not going to have one for another hour and a half it's also learning to see and be a little bit uncomfortable as well. Like I think it's important to... Get comfortable with discomfort. Yeah, getting uncomfortable with a little bit of hunger or getting uncomfortable getting comfortable with a little bit of discomfort of I know that I want to eat that. I don't have to eat it. This feels really uncomfortable. And because a lot of the time these days, well, you know, we try and overlap discomfort with, you know, scrolling through social media when we're feeling... Rather than facing, you know, facing that threat full on face to face, we try and look for a distraction. And distractions have their place, definitely. But I also think, you know... And this is probably really, you know, on track with what you're saying is that we got to be comfortable. We got to learn to be able to deal with 
stress in a positive manner and we've got to learn with discomfort of not eating crappy food all the time. It's, it's uncomfortable to make change and if we go into it knowing it's going to be a little uncomfortable, we can meet that discomfort and go, oh, yep, I expected this. Yeah. I knew this was coming. That's that discomfort I was feeling like. And it's going to pass. You get these little waves of ghrelin and you're really, really hungry. you just got to surf those things and get through them. They go away. We have this tendency to have habits on things. You know, We have breakfast at 8 o'clock and you know, at 11 o'clock you're hungry and you, you get little waves at different times where your ghrelin spikes and all of it's out of habit it's not a biological thing you've just got to change your habits uh, there's a guy called Daniel Kenneman who won a Nobel Prize in economics and he's a psychologist and he talked about that we don't understand duration he called it duration neglect so you can actually put up with something being uncomfortable for a while and later on you remember that it was uncomfortable but you don't remember how long it was uncomfortable for mm. yeah it's interesting we're very funny little thing organisms us humans nice so just wrapping this up Luke top three hacks for being stress Teflon in life? Well, we've got the three foundations. The three foundations are you need the safety of a tribe, you've got to have pride from contributing to that tribe, and you've got to have honest self-awareness. You can't bullshit yourself. Harriet, top three hacks for stressful eating. Oh, mm. well, I def- I'm going to pick off the back of Luke's and say be curious but not judgmental. So looking at looking at that, the reasons why, I think changing your food environment where possible. So if you have a you know pack of little chocolate frogs on the front of top drawer get rid of them and give make a little bit harder for you to access those foods and also doing that that pre-mortem is being aware of when your hot spots are and instead of completely ignoring them coming up with a plan for what you're going to do next time and being proactive and on the front foot with those ones as well i think is is um, my top three and they're probably very complimentary any good reading in this part from stress teflon any good reading in this area i think the general mindful movement is lots if you just type in mindfulness there is mindful eating there are lots of lots of great i've put a chapter in there i I call it mind awareness i couldn't just i couldn't bring myself to to use mindfulness it just sounds yeah it just sounds so terrible i actually call it mind awareness just to understand what you're thinking and why you're thinking it i really love the concept but rather than mindfulness because the hassle with that is you get all these ideas of you know hippies and monks sitting in the eastern hills of tibet talking about mindfulness and no one really wants to be that emotions are very transient things too like we we give too much credit to our emotions we're you know, we'll be flip-flopping every five minutes. You know, we're just playing a long game in terms of mood and approach to food. And the long game is always the, the most important one. You're going to have crappy days and just looking for them, you know, waiting for them, I suppose, rather than being like without being totally negative. Understanding there's going to be hard days and you become better at them the more you choose to sort of face them front on, I think. Luke, thanks for coming in. Harriet, thank you again. Thank you. Stress Teflon available at stressteflon.com. Grab yourself a copy. <laughs> have a good read. Harriet, thank you again. You are a legend. And you've sat in Big Mac's seat today. How'd it feel? There's, there's some big shoes on the floor here that yeah. I haven't quite filled just yet. Feels good. Yeah, I'm going to get you back down and talk about metabolism with him very soon. Game over. Thanks, guys. This week's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Good Price Pharmacy, Nutrition Warehouse Nationally, and mrsupplement.com.au.